Hello, this is a spin-off from Toby Haydock's Who's Round. So it's sort of like Tortured, but without the aliens made of sex. Um, thanks for listening to this extra podcast, in a way, um, on the Keys of Mariner special. I can't, still can't believe I'm saying those words. Um, the illustrious director, John Gorry, talked about his work on that Doctor Who story and some of his other stuff. Um, but we talked for a lot longer, and he's had quite a career. And so this is the rest of the John Gorry interview that doesn't touch directly on to Doctor Who, but I think aficionados of television drama and television history um, should find some interesting stuff there. Um, yeah. Um, uh, so I thought, why not make it available um, to justify the sheer amount of time that John gave me? Because of the nature of the editing I had to do to put the Keys of Mariner stuff together, uh, the interview was sort of chopped up a bit, so there's the odd non secateur uh, apologies for that, um, but I think it all makes sense. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's, it's probably might be the odd, the odd bit that doesn't quite flow, which uh, will make it seem almost like it's a non-professional uh, venture that you haven't paid for. I know who'd have thought it, but look, enjoy it. I hope. So what's what had got you there? Because you'd started as an actor, yes. you know, and and then and there's this sort of this new television. Is this is this great new thing? Was it the the medium of television that uh, no, encouraged you? No, no, not at all, not at all. Uh, I started as an actor. I thought I wanted to be an actor. I was an actor for five years. My only ambition as an actor was to act at the Bristol Old Vic uh, Theatre, be in the Bristol Old Vic Company because I was at school in Bristol and I had gone to the theatre as a schoolboy and fallen in love with the theatre and the company. And uh, once I'd done that, I got to the, finally after about four four and a bit years, I got myself into the Bristol Vic Company and was there for about a year and I th- increasingly thought I'm not sure I want to do this I think I want to direct but I assumed that I would become a theatre director and I didn't quite know how one set about this so I stopped acting um, and uh, decided well I've got to make some money to live so I try and get a job teaching so I got in touch with my old drama school which was Lambda and said you know any chance of my teaching? And they said, yeah, come at once. So I taught at Lambda for about 18 months, trying to get theatre work as a director, uh, which I did a bit, but it was mostly... Um, again, it was sort of daft things, like uh, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to direct the Ravensbourne Light Operatic Society in the Pirates of Penzance and I said what do you mean they're amateurs and he said yes but they're very good John and I said oh no I couldn't possibly direct amateurs I said in a rather grand stupid way and he said well they pay 80 quid and I said oh I'll do it <laughs> um, so I went down to hear them sing it through and they were absolutely sensational I mean I can't tell you how good they were there, there were people who had been singers who had you know, decided to get girls who had been proper singers who get married and given it up. Anyway, again, having poo-pooed it to start with, I had an absolute ball, and they then asked me every year to go and direct their things, um, which I couldn't do because I was doing television. But no, what happened was I 
I thought I've got to make some money, I can't go on just teaching like this. And I wrote to the BBC and I said, um, you'll be thrilled to know that I wish to become a television director. <laughs> and they wrote back, I think, I have to be honest, I, um, I, 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 I was at Oxford, I mean I'm an Oxford MA or whatever they call it, and uh, I think that's what got me the job. I don't think it was the fact that I'd been an actor, I think it was the fact that I had Oxford on my CV. So they said, yes, come and see us. So I went to an interview and it just was the best possible time to have applied. Purely luck. Um, the, they were just opening up BBC Two and they were, knew they were going to need some drama directors and so they were going to have to train up people. And uh, I got in, did a three-month training course and away I went. And I always thought, well, I really want to be a theatre director. But, and in a way, I mean, I... I slightly regret that I didn't do more. I did some theatre, but I didn't do enough, and I didn't. I regret I didn't do more in a way. But I had a great time, and really, I, because the offers kept coming in, I just stayed with it, and I directed television, drama for films, stuff for oh, I don't know, forty years. Ago. Now, your your desire to do theatre is that um, because. Is that purely the practical thing that you would have enjoyed the process more, or do you think that theatre is more important or better no, art than television? No, absolutely not. No, no, I don't. In fact, I used to argue that television was in many ways more important than theatre because so many more people were reached by television than, than ever go to the theatre. Um, and I would have arguments with my theatre director friends and uh, actors and people saying, look, I do something on there and... I, I, one play I did 20 million people saw. Now, come on, it's going to take an awful long time for 20 million people to see a theatre play. I have to admit that was Danny the Ruin, Charlie's aunt, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, no, absolutely not. I don't think theatre is superior. I, I don't think any art form is superior to any other art form. I just think they're all... I'm afraid I rather think they're all showbiz, and that's great, and I love it. Um, I don't think it's the most important thing in the world, and I get very impatient with people who behave as if films, theatre, television, or anything is the most important thing in the world. I don't think it is. I think if you have a talent for it and you're lucky enough to enjoy it and get on with it and earn living it, it's great. Couldn't be better. But um, uh, you're not changing the world. You're not changing. Well, you're changing the world a bit. Um, particularly, I mean, I, I write as well, and I used to. I used to write and direct my own stuff, which was wonderful um, to do. It's wonderful for me. And uh, writers do change the world a bit. Um, in other words, you, you, you'd get letters from people saying, you know, your play really kind of changed my attitude to this or that or whatever it is, which is wonderful. And that then you feel you really are doing something in a small way. But um, I do think a lot of theatre people tend, and television people and film people, tend to have an exaggerated idea of their own importance, as I do think. Well, and the other thing is, of course, that people who are aficionados of television from back in the day um, often bemoan the lack of single plays on television um, and the reliance on soap opera. And there's not as much original television as, as say, as original drama as, say, in the 60s, 70s and no. 80s. Um, and so in terms of writers changing the world, is, are you one of those that, that, that bemoans the state of modern television because there isn't as much original I, writing? I that's a difficult one I don't 
I don't like the idea of old people. I mean, I'm, I will not allow myself to talk about the good old days because I don't believe that's how life is. Um, I think we all tend to think that the best things were done when we were between the ages of, I don't know, 20 and 40, say. Um, because that's when you're at your absolute peak, probably physically and mentally. And you think, oh, this is, this is great, this is good. And then you get older and you think, oh, well, it's not as good as it was. And no, 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 they're not doing as well as it is. I don't really buy that. Um, it's different. I mean, there are still some wonderful, wonderful stuff on telly. Uh, some of the series are very, very good. Um, there aren't the single plays. Yes, I do mourn them a bit, but it's it's as good, only different. Put it that way. I think, and I, I really don't buy this whole thing about oh, television's awful now. All right, I don't like the reality game shows or whatever the hell they are. I mean, what's it, what's that thing? Celebrity knockout. Big Brother. Big Brother. Yeah. I I don't watch them but I mean they're very popular and if that's what people like fine you know that's that's all right um, and well as I say the one thing I hate is elderly people moaning on about how wonderful the world was when they were there and now it's no good anymore I think that's I think I think we all there's an instinct in old people to do that I just think that's how it is and I think that if you think about it the trick is to think, okay, no, it's, it's, it's no better, no worse, it's just different. Um, and it's in any case quite a good idea for you if you're old to move on, because if you don't, if you, if you hang around too long, you're, you're actually occupying a job which, and I feel this passionately, you're op- occupying a job which a young person could do who probably needs to get started. Uh, at this point, uh, I used some of the interview uh, for the Keys of Mariner special, and then we started talking about John Osborne, and when I was putting this together, we didn't seem to have a link from the bit you've just heard to when John starts talking about John Osborne. So th- this is that link. Uh, I hope you had fun with it. He was a very strange man. I, I did did picture of Dorian Gray, which he'd adapted. And I I met him the once, and he seemed quite happy about it, but we didn't. I didn't really get to know him at all. That Dorian Gray was for uh, television, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, with Gilgood. Yes, with with Sir John, absolutely, um, and Peter Firth, the young Peter Firth playing Dorian. Uh, yes, that was much later though. Yeah, but uh, the Dorian Gray with with John was was in any case an accident because I was due to do Forty Years On, uh, Alan's play, uh, uh, Alan Bennett's Alan play. Alan Bennett, yeah. Um, with with John. Gilgood, he'd yeah. done the stage version. Exactly, and we were due to do it, and all was and Gilgood was under contract and agreed to turn it. And uh, I'd worked with him anyway in um, in a big series that I'd uh, done called About Edward the Seventh. He played Disraeli, and so I mean he was he was by then a sort of friend, and we got on very well. And um, then Alan's father died, and he had to. Alan wanted to be in it playing his original part yeah. and I said of course I mean you know it's thrilled couldn't wait and uh, I think he also wanted to keep an eye on it I think he wanted to make sure it was done the way he wanted it done which I would have been perfectly happy to do because I have a huge respect for him I think it's one I think it's the best but just about anyway um, 
he, uh, his father died and he, he had to go to, you know, up to Yorkshire and he said, look, I'm sorry, but I'm, I don't want it now. I'm, I'm going to withdraw it. Which meant we had John under contract. So uh, my producer said it was Ina, said, well, what are we going to do? And John said, why don't we, why don't we do Dorian Gray and I can play Lord Henry. And um, so that was that. But it's, it's not that good a play, really. No, you can see why Gielgud would go for it. Well, he said it's Henry a, just sits there well, spouting he said it, it's, He said it's my last chance to play that kind of part, to be perfectly honest. And um, so we got Peter Firth and... Uh, Jeremy Brett Jeremy, as well. Jeremy played uh, Basil. Jeremy had played Dorian uh, as a young man, so I thought that might be quite interesting for him to play Basil Howard. But um, it's all right. Uh, the thing I like best about it that I have to is the music, but that's not... <laughs> Which was um, now, in hindsight, um, which was written by Joe Horowitz, composer Joe Horowitz. And I, uh, it's a wonderful story, I, I, I asked Joe to write the music for it. And he said, What do you want? And I said, Well, I sort of want something that sounds a bit like Elgar's string quartet, that sort of sound. String quartet sound. And he said, fine. And then I went over to his house and he played me this ravishing music on the piano. And I said, well, we can't use that, Joe. We can't. And he said, what do you mean? Isn't it good enough? I said, good enough? I said, it's far too good. You've got to use it yourself. As No, he said, you don't understand. You said you wanted a sort of Elgarian, so I've written an Elgarian string quartet. And I sort of realised something extraordinary about musicians. I mean, that, that he's such a, a fine musician that he could actually just do that, but that wasn't the sort of music he would write at all. And he said, no, I couldn't possibly put this out as owned by me. But they'd all scream with laughter and say, what on earth is Joe doing? I guess you have to place music very carefully in a drama. Well, I'm... I love music. I listen to music all the time. Um, classical music. Uh, and I think music's very important. Very, very important. Um, I sort of know... I, yeah, I, I think we, we get it about right. The Americans put on too much music, for my taste. Um, when we when we were doing Edward the Seventh, uh, they said you've got to you've got to edit and do everything. Get one of the first, for the first one of the early episodes because we're going to send it to America. So you've got to edit it and put the music on it so it's all complete and done. And and we'll send it to America and then hopefully they'll buy the whole series. So I did that while I was in the middle of directing the other stuff. Did it at weekends and. We put the music on and away it went to America and the message came back. We think it's absolutely great and we want to buy it. And when you put the music on, it'll be wonderful. <laughs> he said, the music is on. <laughs> you see, once you put music on something, you can't edit. You're stuck. Oh, uh, yes. Um, uh, I mean, I did a lot of opera, finally. Well, not finally, but in the middle of somewhere I did, used to do operas on television. Not taking cameras to Covent Garden, but actually doing it like a play in a studio, not mm -hmm. a camera. And... The, the the difficulty was, and it was it's easily the most difficult thing I've ever done was was you you couldn't stop if the music was was continuous and didn't have a break a natural break where you could get the scissors in, you couldn't stop you just had to keep going and pray that everybody got the shots right and <laughs> was all okay. Um, no tweaking possible. Once no, the track's I mean down. You, I did did uh, Tales of Hoffman and Garrett Evans was in it and. He had a big aria. Of the, he played the Depututo, the, the wicked. He played all the wicked parts. Um, it's, it's about three stories, and he played all the baddies. And he uh, had a 
this amazing, very difficult aria to sing. And I said to my senior cameraman, uh, look, what I want you to do is I just want you to just track the whole of the way around him. I said, when you get to the back, you'll have to go high so that we don't see all the gubbins, but go right up and then come right down. So the whole thing is a very slow circular track, which is terribly difficult to do. And the thing, I suppose the aria lasts about three or four minutes. And this amazing cameraman who... I hope other people have spoken to you about called Jim Atkinson. Um, You're the first. Well, Jim was the best pedestal cameraman ever, and he he, he was he was the head cameraman on Crew Five. And the first thing I used to do when I was given the new play, the first thing I would do when I went to the office would say, "Book Crew Five now." That was the first thing I did um, because he was he was just far out the best and he trained his crew up um, and he was a wonderful wonderful man uh, some directors didn't like him because he would make suggestions and they didn't like that I loved it I said you can make as many suggestions as you like Jim please help you know let's let's get this right uh, anyway so he, he was doing this track round and I we did it and it all went well and Jim said on the intercom, we stopped because there was a break. He said, uh, can I do it again? I could do it better, I could do it better. I said, we can't ask Brian Evans to sing it again. And he said, let me try. So I said, okay, try. So he went to go out and he said, could you possibly do it again? And Gary said, yeah, sure. <laughs> so we did it again. And he, he did it even better. But he was a great cameraman. Well, on Dorian Gray, we're talking about Dorian Gray. He was he was the number one cameraman. And Peter Firth, who was he was an extraordinary actor because he was a total instinctive. He in those days. I mean, he's now become extremely good and professional. But in those days, he was instinctive and emotional. And if if he wasn't getting the right feeling, he sort of couldn't do it. And when, he, when Dorian has the fit at the end and foams in the mouth and goes mad and stabs the portrait and then turns into a portrait, I said, well, when we, I said, we don't have to rehearse it until we get into the studio. And he sort of looked a bit worried and I said, well, that's right. We got into the studio and he said, well, no, I, can't, I, can't, I can't rehearse it. I don't know what I'm going to do. I said, he said, I'll do it and I'll have a fit and it'll work. But I don't know where I'm going to be. And I said... That's going to be a bit tricky, Peter, because we've got to shoot you. We don't know where you're going to move. It's. He said, "Well, I'm sorry, I can only do it once." But he said, "I really, I really will do it, but I can only do it once." So I said to Jim, "Look, you can only do it once. What are you going to do?" He said, "Leave it to me." And the two of them did it. It wasn't my camera work at all. <laughs> Peter had a fit, and I said, "All I care about is that you hold him, and then you slowly, slowly, when he gets onto the floor, you just go right into a huge close-up at the end." because then we can superimpose the, the mask and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so it sort of changes. Um, and he did it, and he was, he was just a great, great cameraman and a wonderful, wonderful man. And all the television directors, I think, who are the real thing, uh, rated him. Uh, I mean, my friend Jane Howell, who was a wonderful, wonderful director, probably one of the very best, she did, did what I did, I and mean, she would ask for Jim straight away. Always ask for Jim. Yeah, uh, because that was the first thing you did. 
and he he never got his due really. Uh, <coughs> he retired, of course, because he had to, and he retired to Yorkshire. He's, he's alas gone now. But um, and I think he felt a bit that he'd never quite got the recognition that he should have had. And I have to say, I agree. It's, you know, he just was so good. How did we get on to Jim? Um, uh, because got, uh, he was doing your, he was wrangling your opera. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, anyway, whatever. No, it's but, good to give credit to the. To but the he TV was a great heroes. cameraman, and I'm. I would be astonished if, if, what you're doing, someone else doesn't mention him because they certainly should. Was, I owe him a lot. And something we should mention, of course, which we've touched upon, is uh, Edward the Seventh. Edward the Seventh. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Cecil Clark, who was the producer, well, Lou Grade was the main, the big, big cheese, but Cecil was the, his, his his drama producer. And Cecil called me in and said, I want you to, he said, I want you to direct, um, uh, we'll have two directors, I want you to direct, uh, be one of the directors on Edward the Seventh. there's going to be 13 episodes and I want you to be one of the directors. And I said, no, 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 can't do that. And he said, why not? I said, because you, you can't, I said, it, I said I would I would love to do it, Cecil, but I, I have to you have to let me direct all the episodes because I said it, it, otherwise it's broken back. You get two different styles all the time. It doesn't work, and that some the actors will like one director and the others, and it'll all be odd. And he said, well, we can't logistically. It's not possible because while you are rehearsing, someone else has to, you know planning rather. Someone else is shooting, and then you shoot and they plan. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but I really. Th- think it would be broken back and I don't want to know um, I don't want to be part of that very grand <laughs> <laughs> anyway I went away and I thought nothing of it and a week later he rang me up and he said I fixed it so you can do the lot and it's one of the nicest things that have happened to me um, and I, I directed all of them um, it took a year 18 months eh? uh, and I also wrote some of them as well so yes well I noticed you had a hand in the script yeah. is that is that because uh, was that necessity, or, or did you no, feel no, the need I, to? No, I, I would get. I was asked. I mean, I had written a lot of plays for, for Cecil, single plays, uh, which I then directed. I did about half a dozen, wrote and directed about half a dozen plays for him. And he, he said, "Would you like to write some of the episodes?" He said, "David Butler, who is, will be the main writer on it, uh, and if you like to write four episodes, that's fine, because it would just take the, give David a bit more time." So I said, "Yeah." Which helped me because I had to do all the research before we even started. I wrote, obviously, wrote the episodes before I started directing any of them. Um, but it was, uh, it was a good time. And he, he said, he said, well, we've, we've cast it. it, it it's Timothy West is going to play Edward as a grown-up man. Is that all right? And I said, oh yes, very much all right. I admired him hugely. Oddly enough. When we were again doing what I did on Doctor Who on Edward, doing a commentary, Tim said, "I ex- don't expect I was the first choice, was I?" And I said, "You absolutely were." And he was astonished. He said, oh, "Really?" I said, "Oh." When I was offered the job, Cecil said, "It's Timothy West." And he's very good, and he yeah, and, 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 and Crosby well, and yeah. Robert Hardy, I think, is a, well, Robert's a great special. performance. It's Robert's special. Robert's one of my favourite actors. Um, he's special. It's a, it's an absolutely magic performance, and he loved doing it, and he felt. He sort of almost became Prince Albert off stage as well as on. In other words, he was—he sort of lived it a bit and was very much in charge of, of the other actors and encouraged and helped. And, and no, but he's, he's a stunning good actor, Robert. He's one of the very, very best. And you should, should be a sir. 
You, you work with future directors a group called Charles Sturridge, is the Charlie, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, now there's another story. Um, <laughs> I was looking for someone to play uh, the young Tim West, and we had photographs of the young Tim West, and I thought, I'm never going to... I mean, Sam was... Sam who's in it was... Sam and uh, Tim's other son are in it, they're in the little boys. Um, so I, we couldn't have Sam. Uh, but I thought, I'm never going to find anyone who looks like a young Tim West. And Charlie showed up, and Charlie was at my college at Oxford, so I thought, mm, oh boys network, I thought it's terrible, can't do this. But I thought he looks, I liked him, I thought he was dead right for it, and I, he didn't look much like Tim, but I thought, well, it's too bad, we're never going to find anyone who looks like Tim, we'll just have to buy it. So anyway, uh, we, we had Charlie. Now, somewhere along the line, Charlie <laughs> came to me and said, uh, can you can you help me? And I said, what is it? He said, I've been offered a trainee directorship by Granada Television uh, as a trainee director. Do you think I should take it? I said, well, I can't answer that, Charlie. Do you want to be a director or no? It's up to you if you want to be a director. Then do it. If you don't, then if you want to stay an actor, stay an actor. I said, no. I said, I can tell you a question you could ask yourself which would help you decide. And he said, what? And I said, if you think that you could direct Edward better than me, better than I, better than me, better than anyway. Um, then you should be a director. If you don't, you should think very carefully. I said, just go away and think about it and uh, let me know. And a couple of weeks later I said, have you made up your mind? He said, oh yeah, I think I'll give it a whirl. <laughs> I love him. Do you have to have that sort of um, single-mindedness as a director because well, it's your vision? Well, it's partly why I became a director, because I would be working for people and I would think, oh, no, 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 that's not how to talk to that actor. Or, oh, no, that's a really bad piece of staging. Can't you see that... I mean, I, bless his heart, I worked with... Uh, he'd better remain nameless, but at the Bristol Olympic, I worked with the director when we were doing Richard II. And the first thing he said was, Richard II, contrary to popular belief, is about a very strong king. And we all went, well, it isn't. <laughs> the whole point about it is it's rather a weak king. And I was playing Mowbray, and then Rossiter was playing Bolingbroke. And that first scene where Bolingbroke and Mowbray are shouting at each other, he said, now I want you to be very respectful. And we just thought, well, how can we? We're supposed to be fighting and arguing. He's saying, you know, he's trying to calm us down. And I thought, he's crazy. It's just bad directing. And in a sense, I thought, you know... I could do better than that. And that's why I became a director, because I thought I could direct better than the people who were directing me. We had another director who, who all he cared about was... He was sort of, I think, done dancing. He was more a choreographer than a director. He didn't care about the interpretation or the acting. All he cared about was where he was standing, how far, how far apart your feet were, and whether your arms were in the right place. So it was all tableaus rather than... Yeah, we were doing Man for All Seasons, and I was playing the young king, Henry. And at the dress rehearsal, he, I was halfway down, there was a huge sort of flight of stairs, and I was halfway, I, was, I think I was going up the stairs, and I stopped halfway up the stairs and said the final lines, and then walked off. And I got to him and stopped, turned, and he said, stop, 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 stop. Rushed up to the stage, moved my left foot about six inches to its right, said, that's fine, on we go. <laughs> and I thought, I can't believe that. 
that's what he did. So you don't just learn from the best, you learn from the worst as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Obviously, there are good and bad directors, and I, I, I don't misunderstand me. I worked with some very good directors. Um, I nearly worked with the, almost the greatest theatre director of the last century, Tyrone Guthrie, but that was another sad story. But you almost did, but you didn't. Well, I almost did, because I'd come back off this famous tour of The Winter's Tale, where Peter Stenson was and Dame Eileen, and uh, my agent said, oh, um, I've got you an interview with Guthrie, Tyrone Guthrie. He's doing Hamlet with Christopher Plummer and Zoe Caldwell, and uh, you're to go and see him. So I went to see him, and um, I'd grown a sort of funny little beard while I was on tour. And he said, why have you got that beard? And I said, heaven help me. Well, I just wanted to see what I... I thought I'd better grow a beard so I could see what I looked like with a beard before I died. And she roared with laughter and said, oh, I think we'll have you in the show. And I thought, wow. He said, I don't know what you'll play yet. Uh, he said, but we'll have you. I, it was only, I wasn't going to play anything big. I mean, I'd have been lucky if I got... Ultimand. Yes, or, or, you know, one of those people. I was, it, was, it was a spit in the cough. But I just thought the, I should just be there. And Guthrie is great with small parts. He, that was his thing. He would always give the small part people interesting things to do. That was why he was such a great director. Well, one of the reasons. And uh, unfortunately, he, he got ill and the whole thing was cancelled. And oh. so it didn't happen. But no, I, I, I did work with, with some good directors, uh, obviously, um, whom I respected hugely and learnt from. But once or twice you thought, I'm not sure that's quite right. Well, talking of Shakespeare, it does sort of tie back to Doctor Who in a way, because Doctor Who could be seen in some ways as, you know, boldly experimental or a work of grand folly, depending what you think going to six mm. different alien planets in six weeks <laughs> is. You were part of the big BBC um, initiative um, to produce every single uh, Shakespeare play. Yes, I was. Uh, yeah. Within, but made as television yeah. rather than made as films. Yes. Uh, and you did the, the Tempest and uh, Twelfth the Twelfth Night. I didn't want to do the Tempest. I wanted. I, I was going to do. Uh, I, I worked a lot for Cedric Messina, who was yeah. uh, who I was very fond of and admired hugely as a producer. He was a, a, a difficult man and noisy and shouted at you a lot and. Uh, and a lot of people didn't like him, but I liked him enormously because he was he was a fine producer because he, A, he aimed high, and B, he was... I mean, we often had furious arguments about things. And when, it, when I, I went to him and I said, I want to do Twelfth Night and Othello. And he said, right, well, I want you to do Twelfth Night Byronic. And I said, no, oh, no, 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 no. I said, that's all hard lines. I'm going to do it Jacobean. I'm going to do it sort of soft lines and roughs and frills. And he said, oh, no, that's a crazy idea. And I said, no, no, that's what I'm going to do, Sidney. And he said, oh, well, I'm going to, and stamped out of the office in a fury. And I thought, oh, well, that's the end of that. I probably, probably, would, I probably won't be doing it by the end of the day. And two or three days later, I bumped into a colleague who said, oh, Cedric was raving about your ideas for Twelfth Night. And I said, what? But that's what he did. He would test you by putting up against you to see how determined you were and how, how sure you were of what you were doing. And, and then he would he would praise you behind your back. And I much prefer someone who is rude to your face and praises you behind your back than the other way around. <laughs> oh. So this is where your single-mindedness again has to come through as a director. You yeah. have to go... Well, well, that's what it's about. I mean, it's, it's, if, it's, it's always the director's show. This is not always realised in television now. That's one of the things that's not so good about television now, is that the directors have slightly sold the pass and it's now producers almost more. Lou Grade was a showman. 
and Lou, Lou was a total showman, but intellectually, didn't have, there's a wonderful story about it, when they were going to do, they did Shakespeare, uh, they were going to do Shakespeare's life with bits of the plays. And Lou came into Cecil and said, we're going to do Shakespeare's life with bits of the plays, and we'll put the bits of the plays in the, in the places where they were. So he said, Cecil, t- say some Shakespeare plays to me. So Cecil said, well, Merchant of Venice. Great, perfect, we'll go to Venice, and we'll shoot in Venice, uh, and it'll be the life of Shakespeare, and then we'll do a bit of the Merchant of Venice. Say some more. Um, well, Macbeth, uh, where does that, Scotland? Well, go to Scotland, yes, great, great. Uh, say some more. Mary Wives of Windsor. What? You mean just down the, down the motorway? Uh, Windsor, down there? Yes, Mary Wise. Well, we don't need to do that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but of course, you didn't go anywhere to do the, the, the BBC Shakespeare. That you, it, it, and again, it just goes back to that thing of, because that sort of drama, there's not necessarily a pretense to realism in a sense. Well, that, I have to tell you, I don't think Shakespeare ever totally works on television because right. everything's the wrong, the scenes are the wrong length. When I, I, when I said, Cedric said he was going to do them, I said, I want to do Twelfth Night and Othello. Um, and he said, fine. And he said, why do you want to do those? And I said, because they're domestic plays. Um, they're plays about human passion and Twelfth uh, Night's about love and, well, so is Othello in a way. Uh, but they're both domestic. I said, if you ask me to do Henry VI, part one, two and three, I shall say, not a chance. I wouldn't even know where to begin. My friend Jane Howell did them and did them brilliantly. But I mean, I'm, I'm lost in admiration for her because I couldn't do something like that. I simply wouldn't know where to begin. But anyway, um, no, I said I want to do 12th Night and Othello and he said fine. <clears throat> and so we started with Othello and he said, who do you want to play Othello? And I said, well, I want James Earl Jones, who was the, at that time, the great yeah. black actor. And he said fine. And I said, and I want to approach Albert Finney to play Iago, which he never played, and he should have done, because he's perfect for Iago. Which is exactly the right kind of open-looking chat. Honest Iago. Exactly, honest Iago. So off off Cedric went to the States to sign up James Earl Jones, big publicity, and uh, British actors equity wouldn't let him in. And Cedric was fit to be tired, and I was fit to be tired. He wanted to do it, he was dead keen to do it. And I was in process of talking to Albert's agent. And it just would have been so good, the two of them. Uh, but British actors said, no, there's got to be a British black actor. And to be fair, there wasn't. There really there were some good actors, but they weren't in a million years of fellow. So they got that famous British black actor, Anthony Hopkins. Well, that was much later. That was after <laughs> Cedric had gone and, and yeah. Jonathan Miller was. So, so they, they had Anthony Hopkins and Bob Hoskins, which I personally don't think was, would have been was half as good as mine would have been, but then I'm biased, probably. But anyway, so then they said, well, Cedric said, well, uh, uh, John G. wants to do The Tempest with you. So I said, oh, Tempest? So difficult. Too difficult. And he said, why? And I said, because the temptation of The Tempest will be to over-magic it and make people disappear and all that stuff. And I said, I'm just afraid it will become awfully technical and not very moving. Anyway, he said, well, you're going to do it. So I said, okay. And then, of course, again, stu- stupid BBC bookings again. They, s- they said, no, you want- Don wants too much money. <coughs> we can't do it. <coughs> and I said, well, why don't you take, I think it was the difference between 3,000 and 5,000. 
I said, why don't you take £2,000 off my fee and put it, give it to John and then that'll be alright. And they said, oh, they said, go away, we can't do that. Um, so for the landmark show, they didn't get, they didn't get they didn't John, but you had Michael Horton. Yes, no, well, uh, to be fair, Michael was wonderful and that in, in a way made my job much easier because Michael had played it the previous year at Stratford. So he knew the play backwards and he was very clear about what he wanted to do. Uh, and I thought he was very, very good. Um, but my favourite performance was, was an actor who stood around called David Dixon, who plays Aaron. David, David Dixon, who's much loved by uh, a lot of people probably listening to this because he was Ford Prefect in the television That's version right. of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, That's right. but has not had a massive career Well, uh, he's, he's not very big. He's very small. He's, he's, he's not a tall man, a big man. But he's such a good actor. Um, and he, his agent rang me. I'd worked with him. I think he was in Lily or something. I'd been doing at LWT. Or may have been even in Edward. I can't remember. But um, I'd worked with him. And his agent rang me when I was casting the papers and said, my client David Dixon says that if you don't let him play Ariel, he may very well have to kill you. <laughs> so I, I thought, hey, that's a wonderful idea. And I, I still think he was absolutely wonderful. Very, very good. He's so kind of odd and quirky and sort of, I mean, some areas are sort of twee, but he's, there isn't a twee bone in his body. He's, sort of, he's just really Offbeat. Good. Offbeat, odd. And he sang, Joe wrote the songs, Joe Horowitz, we were talking about just now, wrote the songs. And he sang, he, he sang beautifully. But, but not, not sort of like a, a trained singer, if you see what I mean. And I said, I don't want that, I want just sort of natural, ordinary singing. Anyway, now I, I'm, I would do the temp. if I did the Tempest now, I would do it completely differently. I now look at it and think, oh God, what was I doing? <laughs> Um, that's that's the thing of looking back, though, isn't yeah. it? Is always fun. well. Twelfth Night, I still quite like because I think that I'm Robert Hardy, who we were talking about yeah. earlier, is, is so good as Belch. I rang him and I said, "I want you to play Toby Belch," and he said, "Oh, do you think I'm old enough?" And I said, "Yes, I absolutely do." <laughs> I said, "He doesn't have to be an old man; he can be quite sort of young, middle-aged man." Anyway, he's lovely, um, isn't it? And Sinead is very good too. Sinead Cusack plays Olivia. No, that Alec, was Alec McCarran who you used to. Look yes, Alec. Alec I, well, Alec was a mate, and I, I've known Alec for years. Um, he was very good too. No, I, I just I love Twelfth Night. It's my favourite Shakespeare play, so I was perfectly happy doing that. I also the, the performance I wasn't sure about at the time, and I now think was one of the best things in it is uh, an actual Clive Arundel who plays Orsino. Um, at the time, I, I thought, oh, I'm not sure I have made a mistake here. But um, even when I recorded it, I was still thinking, well, mm. but now, with hindsight, if you ever hear this, Clive, I apologise. <laughs> I think he's one of the best things in it. It's very interesting, because I knew you, you, you taught, and you, um, but you taught when you were young as well. I, mean, I, th yeah. I think you taught, Martin Court said he'd met you because you taught... Him, or was it might have been Peter? But oh, yes, I think he was a student. He was a student at Lambda. That's right. So Martin Wallace, that's you've right. always you've always had this thing of, of of Well, I taught before I went to university. I had a six months after I came out of the army because we all had to do national service in those days. Um, I taught in the army. Indeed, I've always taught. I, I love teaching. I always have. Um, I just think. You see, I, I mean, I I think teaching in some ways is more valuable than directing. If I'm honest, because you're actually. You really are passing helping the baton, people. Yeah, you're passing it on. You're, you're helping and helping people. Some people you help more than others, obviously. Um, but no, it's I love it. Anyway, that's another here and there.
uh, and there we shall leave it. So that was you know, 40 minutes in the company of John Gorry, who's had quite a career, and we didn't even touch on uh, Geoffrey Archer and First Mining Equals and Peter Bowles and Brown Murray and Perfect Scoundrels and all sorts of other things that he's done. But I hope a taster of, uh, of, a, of a pretty good and pretty hefty career that uh, John was kind enough to share with us. So um, thanks for listening to that. Um, please tell your friends about this podcast uh, if you think uh, anybody would be interested in the stuff that, uh, that I'm throwing out there. Um, okay, till the next time. This is Toby Hado. My sincere thanks to John Gorry. My thanks to the actor Anthony Keach who put me in touch with John Gorry. Um, and uh, till the next time. Don't do anything naughty. John's charity is Mind, which is www.mind.org.uk. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. I know what they call us. On the data vids, I mean. Blake Seven. <laughs> like we're a team. Try telling that to Orak. He's hardly a team player, is he? I am well aware. Then there's Avon. He's a computer genius and more than a little bit scary when he puts his mind to it. And he does that rather a lot. Stand up. Or you'll blast my head off. Don't think I won't. Uh, don't get me started on Niren. He's, well, um, well, it's complicated. Federation, conditioning is so strong. I am Gustav Niren. I am... Gustav Nyron. Nyron's from Auron. Did I mention that? So is Callie, come to think of it. There's someone who knows her own mind. Don't shoot. It's me, Vasco. Vasco. Yes, from the Ortega. Callie. And then there's me. We're less than ten minutes from crashing into a planet. So hurry. I don't work well under pressure. We're going to die. You think that isn't pressure enough? My name is Keston Voss. Blake 7, The Liberator Chronicles, Volume 11. Big Finish. We love stories. <laughs>